The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Gil asked me to talk this morning uh, about a, a common topic, uh, interesting topic of how practice and work or practice and daily activity uh, relate to one another and how, how we can make our work life, our everyday life and our practice life unified and connected. It's a very, very big topic and I think we all uh, we all we all need to approach this because I believe most of us here are householder people of one kind or another so we we actually do have a a life <laughs> and we have to work and we have families and so on and so forth. In, in original Buddhism, of course, there was, there was the stepping back from the householder life and the, they set up a circumstance that was, was very simple, very clean, so they could focus entirely on their practice. And sometimes we do that. Uh, sometimes we have a special time when we do that just we just do that one thing of practice, but of course we have to come back from that uh, uh, and enter into our daily life and uh, and the the topic is how to how to integrate those two things work and uh, work and practice um, yeah Chikoji. Chikoji, uh, in a certain sense, although it might seem like a, a monastic setting or a retreat setting, we actually—it's actually a work setting for us. We live at Chikoji, and uh, we we become a host to other people, and we maintain the place. So um, we have the. We have a little more advantageous situation in the sense that we have our practice and our work together in the same place. Um, with other people, they go to a special place and they practice, or they have a special place or a special circumstances in their daily life where they that they set aside a time or a place for practice. So. And what do we do about this issue of integrating practice and daily life? Big topic, wouldn't you say? Big topic. Big topic for me, too, even though I have to teach and so on. Still, there's many, many aspects of our daily life that... uh, we're not sure if we can say that we're practicing or we're integrating them with our practice life or practice mind. 
at Chikochi, we have some, uh, we have a resident community of, of, a few, of seven people. Uh, but this summer, we've gotten a new addition to our residency up there. We have seven new members, seven additional new members. And uh, uh, these members are chickens. <laughs> uh, right back there is my Dharma friend, Greg. He's the guardian of the Jikoji chickens. He takes care of the chickens. So we've, we're, we had some chicks that, uh, they're almost full grown now, but the chicks have come and uh, made themselves part of our sangha. We call them the, uh, the seven Arhat sisters. <laughs> and we're having trouble naming them because they they're, look so much alike, actually. But that's as far as we, we've got, the seven Arhat sisters. And when they were young, they were first uh, contained in a... We had a little coop, a chicken house, and a, and a little yard where they could go outside. But uh, later on, we opened up that yard, and now they're what's called free-range chickens. So we have free-range chickens. Our, and um, was it Aud- Audrey? Who came for the last retreat? Andrea. Andrea, thank you. Andrea came with the retreat. So even this last IMC uh, retreat that was at Jikochi, the chickens were out and about and um, wandering around the grounds. And so far they haven't wandered into the, our meditation hall, our zendo. But could could happen. <laughs> So we have the phenomena of dealing with what it means to be free-range. Free-range is an interesting term. Free, this word freedom is a kind of loaded term in our culture. How to be, how to be free, right? How to be ourselves, how to be free. Um, Freedom, of course, involves a certain amount of risk. Um, with the chickens themselves, when they, uh, when night comes, Greg has to put them in their, put back in their pen, so coyotes and such don't don't get our chickens. So, um, the question comes up for us in our practice: How? How we can be, how we can be free range in our life, and yet uh, practice, be responsible, be attentive to uh, this particular way that we've chosen. When we practice at Chikochi, we, we have these things called sashins, which are like, you might call them retreats in your tradition. And uh, we, we have a thing called a work period. So right in the middle of our practice, we take a time out in the day to actually do some work. And the idea is, it's called samu, 
And also there's something else called soji, which means to clean. So we have a certain time in the morning when we all get together and we do cleaning chores. And, and in the afternoon we, do, we work together. And the idea is that the practice mind is, is seamlessly carried into activity. So with our eating, with our working, with our walking meditation, with our sitting meditation, uh, we, in our meditation intensive, we try and make them one, one thing. It's hard. It's very hard. Uh, practice itself is a deliberate uh, circumstance that we set up where we simplify uh, our environment in a very, very deliberate way. And we try and make things as simple as possible. So we just sit down and we just become quiet and we just follow our breath. We just develop a mindful attention to the present moment. We set up this, what might be called a kind of artificial situation or a deliberate situation that's very, very simple. And uh, so when we come out into the world, into the world of activity, into the world of motion, and into the world of multiple stimuli, it's, it's very interesting to watch our minds um, um, adapt to this kind of st- stimulus or this kind of way. So, we sometimes are surprised at how deliberately um, engaged we can be in certain activities and lose our practice mind right away. Uh, but then we come back. We just come back. And this coming back is, and this remembering and coming back is our practice. It's not a question of um, necessarily succeeding or failing, but just the continuous activity of coming back and remembering, oh, here it is, right now. Here's the cup of tea. Here's the hoe that I'm hoeing with. Here's the activity that's right at hand, right before me. So we all do that, don't we? We're all experts. <laughs> to have a practice form, in a sense, is, is a, in one very pure way of looking at it, a kind of apology or a confession because in the strictest sense, if there, if we were, if there was no separation between our daily life and our practice, then we could say 
that a practice form is unnecessary or that a practice form does, should not exist or not be visible. So that the, the fact that a practice form is visible is kind of a confession that there is work in progress. We could almost say we should apologize when our practice is visible. <laughs> Mea culpa, I have to practice. <laughs> I'm sorry. And yet, the fact that our practice is visible is, encourages others. So that's another aspect that, that we can say is useful. But we need, we need a practice form. We do need practice forms. And we do need an agreement to come together to practice. And we need, we need this, this teaching and this way that encourages us to come back home to our original self, to our original, our original understanding of how things are. So the question comes up is, how, how is this working for us? And how can we bring our practice life into our daily life? And how can we make our daily life, our everyday life, and our practice life uh, kind of one road or one thing? Any ideas? <laughs> a big topic and uh, one uh, one way that I want to approach this is to talk about it in the sense of of balance when we when we sit like this when we do sitting meditation and when we do walking meditation there's a uh, an integration or a balancing of body and mind, of of attention and release. There's a uh, there's a deliberate sense to find the center, to bring the activity self and the still self together, to bring the past and the future together to bring, to integrate the whole self. We know this term, the, uh, the middle way, the, the Buddha, the Buddhist way, as it was taught by the Buddha, is, all, is called the middle way. And uh, one definition of the middle way is, is uh, moderation. We don't get involved in extremes but we seek a we seek this balance uh, of of the extremes or the extremities or the the various tensions or the various aspects of our life. We seek a kind of balance, and the very practice that we do sitting upright, we sit upright 
and we take an upright posture. Uh, the very physical activity uh, uh, is, is doing this. There's another aspect of the middle way that's uh, the meaning of the middle way is also it's totally comprehensive. It involves the whole self. It just doesn't involve a practice self or what you might call a pure self or a self that is doing meditation or is being mindful but or is being holy in however you might define holiness or doing sacred work. But it involves, it's comprehensive. It involves the whole self. And uh, there's another aspect of the middle way that's very interesting, which is it's the non-contradiction of opposites. So within us, we know we have many diverse qualities. We have many aspects. Some we might label as good, some we might label as bad. We have, we have many qualities within ourselves. The middle way is the non-contradiction of those opposites. So right along with what is, what is positive about ourself and what is negative about ourself exist side by side. Do you, we all put our hands together like this, right? This is, this is called... Uh, Anjali, uh, one, defin- one term is, we call it uh, gasho. In the Zen tradition, we call it gasho. And this is pretty universal, isn't it? Where these two hands come together. It's done in Christianity. It's done, I think, in pretty much all religions. They have the sense of uh, putting these two hands together and bowing or, or greeting, greeting uh, another person or greeting your seat. So my, uh, my teacher, the founding teacher of Chikoji, taught, when he talked about this, this mudra of Anjali, of Gasho, uh, he said, this, this mudra is very, very important. We, we, we're sometimes casual about this. We just do it. Uh, but he, he invoked us to do this very, very deliberately and get a sense of bringing, of course we bring the left and we bring the right together when we, when we put our hands together like this. We also bring the past and we bring the future together. We bring the good person and the bad person together. We bring the parent and we bring the child together. We bring, we bring, what else? We bring body and mind together. So, we bring, we bring the wise man and the fool together. We bring everything together and we bring it to the center. We bring it right in front of ourselves and we bring it to the center. And from that joining, from that gathering together, we say, hello, or thank you, or I meet you. We we bow. Or. So that's Kasho. Uh, Koban Chino Roshi also said that actually these hands want to come together. 
they remember before the time when they were separated, they were one. Before the drop of your mother and the drop of your father came together, this was one thing. And at a certain time, it became inconvenient. <laughs> so they separated. But these two opposites, identical opposites, remember and want, want to come together. So in this practice, we have this, I would say, wonderful uh, encouragement to come to balance, to come home to the center. And that is my uh, approach to this, this issue we have of how to how to integrate our daily life and our practice life. In, in Zen tradition, a lot of the teaching is uh, done through uh, little stories or anecdotes. Sometimes they're called koans, uh, the little exchanges between a or conversations between a teacher and a student or two teachers or something. So there's this well-known story of two Zen Dharma brothers. One is called Yun Yan and the, and the other is Dao Wu. And one time Yun Yan is out uh, by the temple gate, and he is sweeping. He's he's cleaning very vigorously. He's he has a broom, and he's sweeping away. Uh, and his dharma brother, his older older dharma brother Dao Wu, comes up and says, "Too busy." <laughs> or it, it could be translated as. Uh, you really, you're really into it, aren't you? Or, or uh, sweeping really hard. And uh, maybe, maybe he sees that uh, Yunyan is really into the sweeping. He's really into cleaning, and uh, he's very engaged. So, Yunyan. Uh, Yun-Yan stops and, uh, and turns to his brother Dao-Wu and says, You should know that there is also one who's not busy. You should know that there's also one who is not sweeping. <laughs> Dawu said does that mean that there's two moons does that mean that there's two selves a sweeping self and a non-sweeping self and Yunyan 
held up his broom and said, which moon is this? <laughs> That's the story. It's a great teaching for us how to how to be engaged, fully engaged in our daily activity. And and also not be engaged. Be free. How to be totally responsible and totally committed and totally engaged in our activity and yet detached from it and free of it at the same time. This is a kind of balance, a kind of integration of doing and not doing together. In the San Francisco Zen Center, they have a magazine called The Wind Bell. And uh, The Wind Bell is a kind of metaphor for practice. Uh, a chime or wind chime or wind bell. Um, responds to the wind, right? That's what it does. That It sings. It responds to the wind by singing, right? That's what it does. That's its job. And when the wind comes from the north, it responds appropriately. And when the wind comes from the east, it responds appropriately. And from the south. And when there's no wind at all, there's no song. And when the activity is finished, when the, when the wind is finished, it comes, back to, it comes back to its center. It comes back to its place. It comes back to its home. This is why we practice. And this is why we have a practice form. Because like the wind bell, when there's no wind, we have the opportunity to come back to our center, our home. But when the wind blows, we can respond. When, it, when, the, when the gate is dirty, we can sweep the gate. When it's time to um, get an oil change for your car, well, 3,000 miles, you should get that oil change. You know? It's called appropriate response. There was a question, another koan, where someone asked the teacher, what, does, what is the activity of the Buddha? 
after his enlightenment? What's the whole of his life, the whole of his activity, after the great awakening of the Buddha? And the answer is an appropriate response. So are we any closer to figuring out how to, how to take our practice into our daily life? Or how to make our daily life and our practice one thing? Some people, when they, when they remember, we have a mindfulness practice where we remember our breath, where we come back to our breath. Uh, I believe you do the same thing here, the breath, breath practice, yeah. Some people have a, 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 a practice, a daily life practice where they cue themselves by a daily breath and I do this quite a bit when I get when I get over um, overextended or rather imbalanced in my daily life when I'm too busy sweeping and I forget the one who's not sweeping I um, I can on occasion remember to uh, to stop and just remember one breath. Just recall one inhalation and one exhalation. And in a sense, be refreshed by that cue, that one cue I, I give myself of coming back to my breath. Just one breath. And then I give my attention again to my uh, daily, act, daily activity, whatever, whatever that daily activity is. The word uh, upeksha means equanimity. And as you know, uh, upeksha is one of the one of the four apramanas, the four immeasurables, the Brahma Viharas it's also called. Apramana, the Sanskrit word apramana means um, immeasurables or infinitudes. And they're they're called that because they you basically don't never finish them. They're always they're always ongoing. It's not like some activity that you finish with and you're done with. An apramana is something that we just do. And the three apramanas, uh, the first three apramanas are uh, my tree, which is friendliness, loving kindness. And as you know, and 
And the second one is karuna, compassion. And the third one is um, rejoicing or joy. Uh, mudita, uh, sympathetic joy, it's sometimes translated. And the fourth one is equanimity. The first three apply specifically to how we relate in relationship to things. Uh, equanimity is a little broader in the sense that we can apply this to um, ourselves and to, to practice life. Uh, this is the practice of equanimity is um, a kind of a culmination of all of them together. And this was the this practice of equanimity, this practice of balance, uh, is the place where the Buddha woke up, was the jhana that the Buddha woke up from, the, pl- the kind of circumstances, you might say, th- the favorable circumstances where the Buddha had his awakening. Some of the early teachings of the equanimity uh, define equanimity in in maybe a slightly different way than we're used to. Uh, This is from a Yogacharian tradition from from Shuramanti. And he has three aspects of equanimity. One is called samatha, which is basically equilibrium or balance itself. So we, we integrate the sweeping self with the non-sweeping self. We balance those and we come back to the center. That's samatha. And the, other, the second aspect is called prasathata, which is the tranquil flow of mind. We develop a, uh, we develop a tranquil flow of mind. We actually... Beyond the aspect of calming, of shamatha practice, we, we recognize and we integrate ourselves with the actual flow of mental and physical production. And we uh, attune ourselves with that flow. Uh, we understand and acknowledge the the changing nature of all phenomena and accept it and understand it as a flow. So that's the second aspect of of upeksha. And the third is called uh, it's called anabhokata in Sanskrit and this means effortless effortless effortlessness it's actually something that's a natural phenomena or a natural expression of ourselves. So these are the three kind of qualities of, uh, of equanimity, of this balance that we're talking about. That we we develop a state of equilibrium, a state of 
balance where we integrate the opposites of our lives. And then we accept, we, we pacify that and make it calm and we accept that it's flowing, it's changing, it's always transforming. It's part of a process. And then we develop a kind of intimacy or familiarity with this coming home, a kind of uh, comfortable place where it becomes effortlessness. It's not a question of, of, of making deliberate effort, but the effort is taking care of itself. The doing is taking care of itself. It's kind of like driving a car. You know, we're all, we probably all drive cars here, don't we? I think without exception, maybe there's a few that don't, but we're used to driving cars. And when we, when we were younger and we were learning how to drive, it, everything was very deliberate. And now we, we get in the car and we, we drive. We don't think about, we don't think about how to turn or how to apply our, our, our foot when we put on the brake or on the gas. It's just, we do it. We're kind of one with the driving process. That's anabogata. That's this effortlessness, this kind of familiarity that we have. And that's the fruit of our practice. That's this kind of comfortable familiarity. Maybe in that context, I'd like to read you just a short, uh, short statement from a teacher named uh, Katagiri Roshi, who talked about this in a very, very good way of how to integrate things. He said. There's, there's you, and then there's the world. If there, if there is even a small gap between them, we fill it with thought. As long as we create, create this gap, we never understand the world. The world never understands us. In actuality, there is no gap. To become non-separate with the objective world of reality is the true openness of heart. That is why we practice. Thank you.